Welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Pigs podcast presented by SizeTrade.com. Simplifying technicals, fundamentals, and market psychology for one goal and one goal only to help you make money in all market conditions. Good evening, Size Traders. This is Amos, your host, and I'm here today with Gary, head trader of Size Trade. We're also here with an honored guest, Edward Offenbacher. He's the current senior advisor for international research relations at Bank of Israel and former director of the Monetary Finance Division. He's been at the Bank of Israel for 35 years and worked as an economist at the Federal Reserve Board from 1979 to 1982. Edward and Gary, thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Amos. Thanks, Amos. It's a pleasure to be here. Edward, Gary has an opinion that eventually when the economy does come to an end, that the next bust is going to be a very painful one. Gary's been quoted that he expects a 60 to 70% drop in the markets. Do you see this happening? Do you agree with Gary? Uh, well, I think the first thing I have to say is that uh, after the financial crisis of 2007 to 2009, one can't rule anything out. It's certainly a possibility. And... Uh, uh, the markets are extremely liquid and and uh, uh, slashing around there, and, and it's not clear what 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 it's doing. And interest rates have been very low. Monetary policy has been ultra expansionary for for a decade already, so it, it, you can't rule it out. Nevertheless, the feeling is that uh, the the odds of of, of, of such a, a, a let's call it a second mega crisis. Uh, are, are probably not that great, and it's it, we've had uh, prior to the to the uh, the great financial crisis. I always call it global financial crisis, but we want to emphasize the size here. So call it the great financial crisis. Um, prior to that, there were many uh, say uh, ordinary crises. This was a mega crisis in in, in 2007 2009. Before that, there were lots of of, of crises, and one of the questions is. Uh, what determines whether something is going to be a, a, a mega crisis? Mega crises don't happen very often. Probably the last one, of course, it's arguable. There's no formal definition, but but I think it's it's uh, reasonable to say that the recent episode was was about it was had had the, the potential to become another Great Depression. Uh, the previous. Uh, crises over the past 30 years or so, Latin America, the um, the savings and loan crisis and LTCM and all those probably did not have the same potential to become crisis. And of course, it's easy to say with 2020 hindsight, they didn't. Uh, and they were managed, uh, I mean, the current one was managed too, but it just took a, a lot less money in the earlier episodes than it did in the current episode. Um, so my feeling, so why do I think that the odds of, of having such a disastrous uh, Armageddon-like uh, event again is are is not that great. Um, I think probably, uh, in spite of the fact that 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 monetary policy has been extremely expansionary, uh, the odds are that that uh, the the private sector has been chastened by the uh, the the episode in the ten years ago, and also the realization that. The political will to to uh, the political ability to uh, to bail out the entire financial sector, which is what happened. Okay, the, basically, the entire world the entire world financial sector was 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 more or less bankrupt, maybe more bankrupt. 
and and uh, the, the situation was saved with public funds and and uh, the, probably the people in the private sector feel that the odds that that can happen again again looking at personalities and who are leading the various economies that's that's much smaller so there's more fear uh, ex ante uh, in the in, in among the, the the in the private sector and probably the there, there's uh, somewhat more conservative behavior, we'll get more, uh, less uh, uh, the kind of activity of uh, countrywide savings and loan, or what's called California mortgage, the mortgage extensions and underwriting and stuff like that. In addition, probably the, regul the, the new regulatory environment is contributing something that's arguable. But my own feeling is that having that Mega crises don't happen so soon one after the other. Again, that that's the way I look at it. For all I can, uh, for all I know, Gary may be a hundred percent right, and we'll all be in uh, major trouble. And then my my uh, view towards optimism that the, that the fear is strong enough to prevent another mega crisis will be uh, work in the wrong direction because. Uh, uh, if, it, if that's wrong, then in fact the the, the ammunition is there to to have a very bad situation. So I, I certainly can't rule out uh, the possibility that what Gary is saying will actually turn out. Edward, let me ask you a question. Um, one of the things that I've said in the past is that mega crises. Like, like I agree with you, mega crises don't happen often. I mean, you probably had one 1920s uh, with the Great Depression, late 1920s, I should say. Uh, till nine, till World War II, and then after World War II, you had this Reconstruction period that lasted until the 70s in the U.S. And then the 70s, you had a crisis. I wouldn't say it was a Great Depression, but probably similar to what we had in 08. I wasn't around, but from what I've read, it seemed similar to to the one that we had in 08. My concern is that we're not out of the crisis from 08. We haven't done. I get it. The balance sheets for the banks look totally different than they did in, in 07 or 08. But if you look at balance sheets from 06 and where, where bank stocks were trading and you look at the balance sheets today of the banks, they don't look too dissimilar. Uh, there were some regulation put in to, to, to take away some risky behavior. But overall, you, you see the lending is, is there. It's just not lending it to the, to the mortgage. It's lending to the corporate de departments. Uh, corporate debt is at, you know extremely high right now. Uh, most of that is being used for buybacks. So I, I think when we're gonna, in my opinion, when we're gonna look back at this decade or 15 years, we're gonna say, oh, okay, well it started in 08. They tried to manage it, they failed. Not because necessarily they were bad at it, just we're in a bad situation. And then the real crisis happened, you know, let's say 2019. Whenever, whenever it's gonna happen, I don't know. And then when they look back at it, it'll be one episode. So like the Great Depression, if you look, you know, the crash happened in 29 and then you had a rebound. And then I think it fell back down in 36 or 37. And then you had some type of rebound. And then 39 was bad because of, you know, what was going on in Europe. Um, I think that's a potential where we're going to see it as a whole, as opposed to now we're, while we're living in it, we see it as, oh, well, that was the last recession. We have a new recession coming. Uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask you and, and, and the thing that I... Um, I stress a lot is that low interest rates for such a long time is very bad. And that the reason why is because it takes risk out of the system, right? Uh, it becomes very riskless to take a bet because you're borrowing money at such low rates. 
how do you see them being able to raise rates uh, going forward when corporations and governments have so much debt on their balance sheets and at some point we'll have to refinance that debt? Yeah, I think that that's uh, an important consideration. Let me start with the with the uh, the, the, the renormalization process. Um, I think, first of all, uh, I agree. I agree completely that 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 uh, interest rates have have been held uh, too low for too long, um, given given this given the situation of the economy, the things that one usually looks at, say, in the Taylor Rule. The growth rate of the of, of uh, real output relative to potential and and uh, inflation relative to the to the uh, t- the target of two percent. So uh, now with, with nominal GDP growing about four percent and unemployment also about four percent, the the economy in the states at least is very strong. Situation in Europe, I think, by the way, is different. There, uh, the situation of the banks is not as good, but. Um, but certainly in, in, in America, uh, uh, it seems a little odd to me that, that, that uh, interest rates have been kept as low as they've been kept, uh, with uh, the, the main parameters uh, being uh, warranting a uh, higher interest rate than under, under most normal circumstances. Now, I'm personally, being, being in Israel, I'm not, that, I'm not familiar with, with uh, they haven't done calculations uh, about uh, the effect of, of renormalization on uh, on uh, debt service payments and, and, and whether the, co- the corporations can manage it, but one I'm sure the Fed is doing that, and that's that's probably an important consideration uh, beyond the, the usual Taylor considerations in the speed of, of what's called the re- what we used to call in the 70s the reentry speed, where then the reentry speed was bringing down interest rates rather than bringing up interest rates. Um, but uh, the other point I wanted to make, uh, Gary, based on what, what you uh, said in your uh, the beginning of your comment, was is that uh, I, I presume that that when you raise interest rates, uh, there are going to be some you know significant number of, of enterprises that are going to be in difficulty, and some won't be able to make the payments, and, and, and it'll be a problem. Uh, there's a big. I think there's a big difference between that and a mega crisis. Uh, and yes, what what can you what can you do? The size matters. And 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 uh, if we have if if uh, after the, the 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 recovery that's been taking place now for almost a decade, uh, you know, runs its course, there's going to be some some downturn. And the question is whether that's going to be become another mega crisis. Uh, what is it about the situation that might that will that would make it a mega crisis, or let's say an ordinary crisis, or an ordinary recession? Um, now, my answer to that for the uh, crisis of 2007-2008 was is the answer that was given basically by um, uh, Rajan, the University of Chicago finance professor, who became governor of the Bank of India or the Reserve Bank of India. And he was saying that there was there was too much finance and too much complicated finance that that basically nobody knew what his counterparty situation. They said in, during uh, the crisis, it wasn't enough to know what your counterparty was. You had to know what your counterparty's counterparty's uh, situation was, um, and maybe even more, more further down the line. So uh, there was such an asymmetry of information 
going on uh, uh, due to the due to the toxicity of some of the some of the deals that were being made. Uh, I think that was an important contribution, uh, not to the fact that it, there was a crisis, because the housing situation was enough to make it a big crisis, but to make it a mega crisis. What, what could that the 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 the, the overfinance is what con converted the. Uh, uh, what would have been an ordinary crisis? With, an ordinary crisis is no joke. Okay? Uh, uh, the, so the overfinance converted that into into the mega crisis, where again the entire financial system fa uh, uh, failed. Right. Now, so that makes sense. What's that, the pipeline that... now that's going to do that? Just just a lot of you know somewhat. Uh, it's hard exactly to put it to to. to, to to uh, say exactly with the right adjectives, uh, how how much credit, how how big of a of a credit excess credit extension. I don't want to say the B word. Uh, how much excess credit extension is necessary to to, to tip the scale in in, in terms of uh, the, the making making the situation as bad as you think it is. Not, not either one. Not, nobody, of course, knows. But my gut feeling is that that ha hasn't quite happened in terms. Well, let me let me throw a curveball out there. One of the things that I've thought about, because I, I obviously think about this, I don't know the future, so I, I think of different scenarios. One of the things that I've been thinking about, how what what is the black swan? You know, everybody talks about this black swan because we don't we don't necessarily know what it is. But the question I have is, isn't every recession, if you didn't, if the Federal Reserve didn't act, like so, if you go previous to 19, I believe, what is it, 30, before the Federal Reserve was created, you had a lot of crises, right? And the re that's one of the main reasons why they created the Federal Reserve is because they thought by controlling interest rates on both the way up and the ways down, you could control bubbles from being formed, and you could also stop crises. And I think it's a really good idea, and I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was, it was done after the Great Depression. And... So one of the the things that I have is that the Federal Reserve needs the ammunition to protect any recession from becoming a mega crisis because I have this idea that recessions and growth are both a, uh, like an avalanche avalanche so that once it starts going down the hill it's almost impossible to stop you need you need to really be have a forceful uh, ammunition, if you want to call it, to stop it. In, in the case of the Federal Reserve, they make a lower interest rates. In 2008, they had to go into quantitative easing. And my feeling is, and one of the things that I'm thinking of, is that it could just be potentially that we have a recession and there's no way of stopping it. Because we, we all know, uh, you know, once you start on a, let's say people stop buying cars, People stop buying cars. Now GM downsizes, GM downsizes. Those people lose jobs. Unemployment goes up. Those people can't buy cars. So it's kind of avalanche. So you need some type of way to be able to, a safety net, let's say, uh, to protect us from a crisis. And usually it's either fiscal response where the government spends, but I don't know if we have the ability to do that or the stomach to do that because we're at what, over 20 trillion in the US, um, countries all of, over the world, are at least 100% GDP. You have Japan, who's 300% of GDP. China, uh, if you take their local governments, as, as people say, between 200 and 300% of debt to GDP. The U.S. is around 120%. Uh, Italy, Greece, all these countries. Germany is doing fine, but even France, uh, they have really high debt to GDP ratios. So 
I don't know what the response could be fiscally. And it, when you look at interest rates that are near zero or at zero in the case of ECB and uh, Europe and uh, Bank of Japan or negative in Bank of Japan's form, where's that ammunition going to come to stop it? Are they just going to continue to buy a paper, 10-year paper or 20-year paper? But the problem is we've seen that that has hit a wall because once the 10-year or longer rate paper goes negative, that doesn't work anymore, right? Because you're you're now punishing the banks. The banks can't pass it along. Mortgage rates actually spike because the banks need to make up for some type of, uh, for the nine, 10 basis points they're losing. So now we understand that we can bring rates only down to zero. The negative interest rates doesn't work. I mean, that's why the Bank of Japan put a uh, 10 basis point uh, floor for the 10 year. So the question is, is once you reach that level and you have an ordinary recession, how do you stop it if you, you can't get a proper response from the government because way too much debt already out there and you can't get a response from the central bankers because rates are so low, can an ordinary recession turn into a mega crisis? That's my question. Um, yeah, the answer, is, my feeling is an ordinary recession could potentially uh, turn into a mega crisis. And there are models where that can happen. There's a, a well-known paper by Allen and Gale in 2000 called Financial Contagion in Journal of Political Economy. Um, I, potentially, all, you know, all these, these scenarios are, are, are all, all seem to be feasible. They're not so outlandish that, that, that anyone, I think, in his right mind could call it crazy. I think it's, it's, certainly, a, it's certainly a possibility. And that was the first thing I said in, in, uh, right after the introduction, that, that I certainly cannot rule out the, the kind of doomsday scenario you're talking about. Nevertheless, I think the empirical evidence uh, is that, I mean, there have been many, many uh, recessions in post-war period, and certainly before that, uh, maybe the regimes were different. I, I don't want to talk about it. And, and, and more, perhaps more importantly for this particular conversation, I, I'm far from being an expert in, in, in uh, the, the pre-war history, so I don't I certainly don't want to talk about it. But uh, I think if you look at the, at the post-war history, most of the uh, ordinary recessions where people you know, st uh, slow down buying cars, not everybody, by the way, and even in the Great Depression, not everybody was standing on line, uh, bread lines or trying to sell apples in the street. Right. Uh, but uh, but the so again, it, it, it's it's a it's a you know monetary policy, and it, it's in, 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 in the end of the day, it's a it's it's a quantitative issue. It's how much and how what's the size, and and the recessions that have been brought about by monetary tightening, which was not the the, the, the build-up to the, to the global, well, to some extent it was uh, in the global financial crisis, but uh, there, uh, I think, again, the, the key ingredients in converting it to a mega crisis were not the monetary ingredients. Uh, but if you look at, at, the, at the previous monetary recessions, and there's lots of uh, formal research on this, is that uh, there, there's, there are recessions and, and in some cases, you can have, you know, hairy situations like LTCM. But in the end, I mean, LTCM was dealt with without the you know, the government spending a penny. Uh, uh, New York Fed was able to organize, uh, probably with some uh, you know messages there, 
um, a, a consortium of, of, of banks to, to deal with the problem. Um, so, uh, so, you know, my feeling is that that feeling, uh, maybe it's a hope or a prayer, but uh, again, my, 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 my guess, again, this is not supportive of any research. Nobody can do research that, that uh, you know, ICE is the future. Uh, but my feeling based on, on, on experience is that, that to have such a, such a, a difficult situation as a global financial crisis so soon after the previous one, uh, when the, uh, the, uh, the trigger for the, the, the change in the, in, the, uh, in the cycle, it will be a, a, a typical monetary tightening. Uh, those are usually ordinary recessions. Right. Well, I, I want to say something that you you said that the 2007, 8, 9 uh, Great Recession, let's call it, was not brought on by monetary easy uh, tightening, I should say. And See, in my opinion, right. sorry, that was uh, spoke too soon, too fast. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, anyway, my thing. Yeah. yeah my, my thing is this that. This is the way that I look at it, um, and and tell me where I'm looking at it incorrectly. I, I'm looking at it it's going back to the 70s. You know, you had a an inflationary spike in the 1970s. Some of it had to do with oil. Some of it didn't have to do with oil. Volcker, who was the, the federal president at that time, raises interest rates all the way up to I believe it was 20 percent or or near there. Um, unemployment obviously spikes. The economy can't grow fast enough at, at those interest rates. Nobody's borrowing money. But he cuts out the cancer. At that time, it was inflation. Now, once that happened, I believe 82 or 83, you start lowering the interest rates. And all of a sudden, you have this jolt coming into this market, so the, mar the economy. The economy is almost like a spring being tight, tightly held. And then once you start releasing interest rates and lowering it, all of a sudden, that spring explodes. And we had great growth, amazing growth. Yeah, we had some bubbles, saving and loans. But all of these bubbles which I would call mini bubbles at the time, were dealt with by then Federal Reserve President Greenspan because he took over with cutting interest rates. And when you mentioned long-term capital, he did the same thing again. You know, it was, I believe, 1998 or so, and the economy was growing gangbangers. I mean, the Dow was at near 10,000 from 1,000 20 years earlier. Everything was spectacular. Unemployment was was full potential or employment was at full potential. Everything was going spectacular. He lowers interest rates and obviously he stems the problem. But all of the savings and loans and long-term capital, he never solves the problem of the underlining issue of too much leverage. And then in 2000, finally, because interest rates went just high enough to pop the tech bubble. And in my opinion, if you would have taken longer to pop the tech bubble, it would have been just more catastrophic. Greenspan responds by cutting rates again to historic low rates at this point. Uh, Post-September 9-11 was, I think, 1%, which is the lowest rates were ever in the United States at that point. And what that does is it builds another bubble, and it builds a bubble in housing because rates are low. People are now afraid to invest in stock market because they just went through that. They pump all this money into the, into the housing market, then eventually flows back into the stock market because the economy does good. So now you have almost like these, you've never solved this problem of too much leverage in the system and, and rates too low. And then Bernanke, in my opinion, took too long to raise rates. He did raise rates, but he took, he was uh, too measured in my opinion. And 
the longer you keep rates low, and this is the, the environment we have now, the longer you keep rates low, the harder it is, or, or the lower the threshold the economy can accept of higher interest rates. So even though for historical sake, if you look back in 2007, I think we raised interest rates to four and a half to 5% uh, for the Fed funds. It was high enough to, because people were, were so used to getting uh, rates at two, 3% for housing or whatever, that that was high enough to cause a bubble and, and pop the bubble. And now you're here again and again. I don't know how we solve the problem of leverage. How, how did we solve this problem? We, if the if it's kind of like if a patient has cancer, giving him more cancer is not going to save it. And that's what I felt like we did in 08. And I think it was the right move in 08. I, Bernanke did the right move in 08, 09. He put his foot down and said, we're going to stop this crisis, even if it's extraordinary. But now you're nine, 10 years in, you still basically have... In Japan and in Europe, you have emergency measures in place. You have historically low rates still in the United States. I think we're at 50 basis points now on the Fed funds. And it's just crazy to me that that leverage has to, you have to drain the system of the leverage, kind of like what Volcker did. And Volcker did it for inflationary purposes in, in the 70, late 70s, early 80s. But we need to take this leverage out of the system. And I, I just don't understand. Like that money has to go someplace, right? And when interest rates go higher, this economy that's growing at 2% or 3% worldwide or whatever whatever the number is uh, growing, once the interest rates go up and you pop, take that leverage out of the system, the first thing is, is that the economy, the, the GDP, worldwide GDP is going to come to a stop, right? Because it's so used to having this amount of leverage coming into it. And then once that happens, you're going to start seeing bubbles pop because corporations won't have be able to make enough money to pay interest. Governments are not going to make enough money because debt to GDP is at 120% or 150% or 200%. But then if you lower the GDP side, that goes through the roof. And what is the response? Because the response for the last 30 years has been spend more, cut interest rates, spend more, cut interest rates. And if this happens at 1.5% on the Fed funds, and 20 trillion or 20 plus trillion of debt in the United States. Are we just, I mean, th does debt not matter? I mean, I, I, what's his name? Uh, Krugman says debt just doesn't matter. Can we just go to $80 trillion worth of debt? Can, can Donald Trump or whoever president will be at the time, can he just increase spending by 60 trillion and there's no side effects to that? Is, can you, where am I seeing it wrong? Am, am I just wrong? Can we just take out as much debt as we want and that's it? I, I I don't think you're wrong. I think I just think that there's another scenario. And distributions are, have both sides. They have the the, the, the the minus side and the plus side of, right. of, of you know of So 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 I, again, I, I certainly wouldn't rule out that possibility. Um, and uh, again, we I mean I said I, we we saw something like this not not too long ago. I mean, ten years isn't a little bit of time, but it's. Certainly not that long ago, someone who was involved in, in many, many meetings in, in, in a country that wasn't really hit that badly, but uh, making all kinds of contingency plans, what if, uh, those are still fresh in the memory, uh, as long as my memory still works. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, but uh, there's the alternative. Now, the other scenario, let, let, me, let me start now with the late 90s. Uh, Again, it's true that that things went on for too long. But in the in 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 the years 
97 and 98 and, and 99, uh, there was a real significant tech boom. And in fact, Greenspan, uh, uh, I'm, I'm recalling vaguely from a description in the book by, by Bob Woodward called Maestro, which described uh, it's basically a biography of Greenspan focusing on uh, his years as the chairman of the Fed. Um, uh, he was at the forefront of the, uh, with, his, with the researchers in identifying uh, the fact that uh, at that point in time, uh, the innovative part, and there's a distinction between invention and innovation. Invention is when you invent the capacity to do something, and innovation is when it's brought online uh, and, and it actually has, an, has effects on economic activity. So, and, the, and there could be a big gap in the timing between the invention and the innovation, mainly because the uh, economic uh, profitability of, of bringing a given invention into use might not uh, be there when the time when when it's in, uh, uh, invented. A classic example that, that I did research on myself at the, at the board was the uh, what, what what was uh, financial management. The the, the the computing capacity and programming capacity to do modern financial uh, management already existed in the 1960s, but then interest rates was, were, were sufficiently low that it didn't pay to spend a lot of money uh, to, to, to do this. But then when the interest rates rose uh, in the mid-70s prior to, to Volcker and uh, as inflation picked up, then uh, firms began to invest heavily in financial management. And uh, and there was a there was a big technological improvement. So throughout the, now that was the 70s. In the 90s as well, the the uh, the 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 uh, the innovation the innovative aspects of the personal computer, uh, which had been invented in the early 80s and then developed in the early 80s, um, developed before the early 80s, began coming online in the in the early 80s, but still it. It began to hit the business sector in a bigger way uh, later on. Uh, so that that generated a a, a, huge, a, a big growth of what, what what the macroeconomists call a positive supply shock, where um, the combination of growth, high growth, and low inflation was not predicted by uh, the Fed's macroeconometric models of the time. Um, so that was a situation where there was justification to a point, to a point, for financial expansion. But of course, as we know, as for 2020 hindsight, um, it went too far, and, and and we got the dot com crash. And again, the, so so, but most of the, most bubbles that we that we wind up having, which we 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 uh, decide ex post are bubbles because they burst. Uh, have have a fundamental element that that generated them in the first place, and the question really is uh, not so much whether you're going to have that kind of qualitative development. I agree 100% that uh, it's reasonable to expect that. The question is how bad is it going to be? Is it going to be a, you know, another total disaster, uh, or are there will will there be some combination of uh, financial in spite of the growth of the financial asset, financial conservatism, or in terms of the types of contracts, in terms of the deals, in terms of the asymmetric and lack of asymmetric information, some better, better, better regulation, 
some you know economic growth that that gets the ratios looking better than than if there would be economic growth. A combination of those those factors that will generate a, a normal recession rather than a great recession. Okay, that makes sense. I, I mean, I I hope you're right. I I don't want. <laughs> I, I, there's more prayer than a prediction, right? <laughs> right, exactly. No, I, I hope you're right. I, I mean. I, I want to say I hope we never have recessions, but I understand that's bad as well. So, you know, I hope we have an ordinary one. I haven't lived. I mean, I've lived through some in like the early 90s. I believe we had a recession that was wasn't so bad. Um, but as an adult, you know, I never had a recession that wasn't. A, I mean, even 2000, we don't look back at it as a as a crisis. But Nasdaq fell. I don't remember what the exact, but 70 percent or 80 uh, percent. It fell. It, it was it was pretty it, it, it decimated the Nasdaq pretty hard. But I definitely uh, hope you're right on this. Um, I had a question. Another question, since you, you've been on, you know, Israeli uh, Central Bank and, and also the Federal Reserve. Do you think that there's too many economists on these versus practical people who like Either, you know, let's take a banker like Jamie Dimon. I, you know, I, I really admire him. Do you think that they should do a better job of bringing in people with some corporate experience and who understand markets? Since markets really, at the end of the day, the markets and the housing market and, and treasury markets, the stock market really drives the economy a lot of times. Um, do you think they should bring these more of these type of people on? Because it seems to me like especially the U.S. Fed is all lifetime economists who never really participated in the private sector, they only participate in the private sector after they leave the Fed. Um, okay, well, I don't have, first of all, I, I think that's not quite correct. Uh, I think, I mean, the Fed, there is a tradition, I don't know if it's, I don't, don't think it's, it's a rule, I think it's a tradition of having some members of the Fed who are, say, consumer advocates. I, again, I, I'm, I'm about to say that, I, that in terms of business experience, um, uh, I agree with you that I, I, I in, at least in terms of my quick recollection here, maybe my memory is not quite as good as it, as it was about the, the late 1990s. Uh, but thinking, thinking about the members of the, of, I don't know about the, the, the presidents of the Federal Reserve banks, uh, who will play an important role in the FOMC, of course, but, right. uh, uh, there, there are. I mean, there are private sector people, but not so much. Uh, not so many bankers, I don't think, uh, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Um, and you know, it could. And and, I, and the other thing I want, I'd like to say in that in this regard, that among the economists, there was an amazing degree of groupthink before the the, the global financial crisis. I mean, all this. All the thinking that went into the formulating the monetary framework during the Great Moderation, uh, there was nobody, uh, you know, being not, there were no contrarians in, in in the language of the Babylonian Talmud. It's Ibcha Mistabra. It's somebody there. There are you know in, in the Israeli army, there's a, a function that that there's a special unit in in the in the planning units and in the, that that. That uh, was tasked with, with uh, you know, uh, preparing opposite scenarios to the mainstream scenarios that are, that are uh, presented by the senior commanders. Um, I'd recommend that the Bank of Israel be set up a unit like that, but of course, you never have enough economists, enough people to do it. Um, 
So within the, the economics profession, there was, a, there was quite an unbelievable amount of, of groupthink before the, uh, the financial crisis. And Rajan, for example, was a very, and Schiller, and a few, a few economists who did predict the, 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 the crisis uh, were really uh, uh, far and few between and were not taken seriously. So, uh, so uh, but the idea of, of bringing in some business people, you know, sound, uh, I, I can't think of any, of any problem. There might be conflict of interest problems. It might be that, that, that it's too hard to, to get people to, uh, to uh, do national service in a sense. I mean, these are people who, right. uh, the, the, the earnings differential is quite significant. So I'm not sure exactly why uh, the Reserve Board or some of the, so maybe some other central banks uh, have not had more uh, people with street experience, um, but certainly something worth thinking about. Right. The other thing is, is uh, a lot of times when economists see a problem, like in 07, there weren't so many, a lot of times their solution is cut interest rates, right? So we see that with Krugman, who's for expansion and, and keeping rates lower for longer, he's saying that, oh, you know, if you raise rates, you're going to have a recession. So the solution to that is keep rates low. And to me, that's a little lazy because uh, obviously you're going to be right in the near term. If you keep rates lower, you're probably not going to have a recession. The question is the severity when you eventually do have it. Um, so I, I would like to, I, I, you know, I don't know. Uh, what Schiller and Rajan said. I, w I wonder, did they have any good, do you know off the top of your head? If not, I'll, I'll, I'll read about it. Did they have any decent solutions other than, well, maybe we should have raised rates? Uh, no. Do the Krugmans have some decent, decent solutions? Uh, not that I know. I mean, they're, they're basically traditional Keynes. I mean, Krugman is a brilliant, right. brilliant academic economist. I mean, right. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, I, I you know, read his column fairly frequently, and it's very often I find very difficult to argue with him, even though I just love to argue with him more than I could. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, my, my, I'm, I'm with you in, in feeling that, that basically, uh, you know, just to keep interest rates low and throw money at the problems is, is, is not the, the right approach. Now, one, uh, maybe no less brilliant, not with a Nobel Prize, uh, economist who uh, was in government for, for many, many years, many positions, was Herbert Stein, former account, uh, chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under Nixon. And he had a great statement. He said, if something is not sustainable, it will stop. Huh. So uh, I think that's a, a great pearl of wisdom. And I agree that, uh, again, again my, my, the, the point I'm harping on is What's going to be the nature of the stop? Is it going to be a really hard landing or is it going to be a bearable? I mean, it's not going to be soft, okay? but is it going to be hard or is it going to be less hard? Right. Uh, so, uh, I understand that. No, I, that, that makes sense. I do. Uh, I guess one last question from, from me. I don't want to take up too much of your time. I could sit here and talk all day and that's it, probably not a good thing. Um, I've, I've made a comment in the past where I think, well, we all know textbooks tell us that when you lower interest rates, inflation go up, goes up, partly because you weaken your currency, partly because you encourage animal spirits to, you know, people hire, people wages go up and so on. Um, 
but keeping rates so low for so long, in my opinion, was detriment to the uh, inflate to inflation. And, and I think one of the reasons why we have this deflation around the world is because interest rates are low. And actually, you know, what you've seen in America is that as Yellen raised interest rates, beat a quarter of a basis point, 25 basis points, I apologize, uh, or 50 basis points. Now, all of a sudden, you're starting to see inflation pick up. And you would think it would be the opposite, right? Because as you, if you're already in a deflationary situation, if you raise interest rates and you strengthen the currency, I mean, dollar is over 100 versus a basket of, of currencies now, um, you should see deflation and you've seen inflation. So is there, do you disagree with my point? that uh, low interest rates for so long causes deflation. And, and uh, I, you know, obviously you haven't read some of the stuff, but basically my, my whole point is, is that when you have a Japanese, let's say car maker, Toyota, selling cars in America and their currency, because they're keeping rates really low, artificially low, their currency is weaker versus the dollar, then uh, they don't have to increase the price in dollar terms of their car because when they convert it back to yen, it automatically goes up. So it's an incentive in their position to keep the price of the car in line to try to steal market share from General Motors or, or another car maker. And since the world is growing so slow, there's not an expansion of market share. So they're all fighting over the same market share. So GM now is forced to keep the price of their car low and they look to make earnings growth other places, which I've been saying is through buybacks. You know, we've historically never seen any type of buybacks like this ever where they borrow cheap money and then buy back stock. So when you buy back stock, you decrease the amount of shares that are available and thus increase your earnings per share. So basically, they've all fought for market share by keeping prices low or, or stable. I should say not low, but stable and figure out different ways to make money. For the Japanese, it's converting it back to weekend. For the U.S., it's buying back shares and decreasing the amount of shares that you, when you divide it, you know, the earnings divided by shares, you decrease the shares, you keep the earnings the same. All of a sudden, your earnings per share went up. So I've been making this point for, I don't know, five years. I've never actually made this point to an economist. Actually, I have, and she didn't really listen to it through. I just wanted to get your opinion on it. Well, uh, well, you bit up a lot for me to chew here. Uh, <laughs> let, let, me, let me start at least with, with, with the... Uh, the relationship between interest rates and inflation, um, and here I'm going to harp back to. Uh, but here I don't. I, my gut feeling is that ultimately, or I don't have any 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 new way of thinking about it. I mean, there there we. I think the economics profession has been surprised to some extent about why inflation has has, has stayed so low uh, with such uh, expansionary monetary policy. Uh, but and there are there are, there, are, there are quite a few questions. The question of why investment hasn't picked up, but I think the the the, the conventional wisdom, which I still think is valuable and will will uh, you know prove pretty much valid, is that the negative relation between uh, interest rates and inflation is over the short run. And now this this short run has been pretty long uh, in the current episode. But uh, you know the, the, the notion that you lower, lower interest rates and you, uh, you you stimulate the economy and that generates some inflation that takes place in what we call the short run, which say Milton Friedman at the time estimated about you know, one and a half, two years, that kind of that 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 that, that order of magnitude. And maybe it's 
because of globalization or whatever reasons, it's, it, the, the, the dynamics are much, much longer, they take much, much longer. But, um, but, but in the longer run, uh, the, 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 using the same causal structure, and in a minute I'll get to a, to a new develop or a new old development on this. Uh, so the, the causal structure is that, that demand eventually gets excessive and inflation picks up, and then they raise interest rates. So there's a, a, a correlation between, in the longer run, a positive correlation, not a negative correlation in the longer run between interest rates because of the uh, inflation compensation or expected inflation compensation. I'm not, not talking about tips here, right. but nominal bonds. So uh, uh, in over periods of four, five, seven years, uh, as estimated by Friedman in the 50s and 60s, uh, you get a you get a positive relation between inflation uh, and, and and interest rates, and that's basically still pretty much the conventional wisdom. There's now uh, a new literature called the neo fisherian approach, uh, which says that uh, uh, low interest rates cause low inflation. Okay, in, in over a lo- in the long run. Uh, I'm not. I don't. I don't understand it well enough to to uh, expand upon it in, in this podcast. I'm, I'm afraid. I'm, and I've, I've read some. I've began to read some of the papers. I mean, this is this is an old uh, something. An old argument. It's it Neil Fisher and after Irving Fisher, who uh, was uh, per, per, perhaps one of the greatest American economists in the first half of the 20th century. One of certainly up there among the the opening five, but. Uh, right. But but there's there've been a number of papers over the past couple of years uh, arguing that that it, that there's that the, the traditional uh, Keynesian type model approach to and Friedman Friedman here is like Keynesian uh, towards inflation uh, is not the correct way of looking at things and, and uh, the causal structure is different. But uh, so that, that and now that that's one point in terms of inflation interest rates in terms of. Uh, the uh, the currency issue with, with with the you know the yen weakening and and, and, and therefore Toyota can sell cars uh, that's the issue of currency wars the, the currency there are currency wars going on uh, affecting many many you know, many many economies this is a prisoners my view is a prisoners dilemma situation lose lose uh, right and uh, but that's uh, that's the way it's being played and and you know it's a dominant strategy for each individual player to that's why it's a dilemma, prison's dilemma. So uh, uh, here, the, the the there's there's a there's a, uh, a well-known paper by the by by the uh, economist John Taylor at Stanford University that if all uh, countries uh, carry you know follow his Taylor rule and carry and and, and do. Uh, convention that hit no by his definition conventional policy. Then you don't need coordination because everybody's targeting the same two percent inflation target, etc. But they're not doing that. Everybody's trying to uh, beg at a neighbor and and uh, right. Sort of In terms of buybacks, uh, you know, I mean, it's, a buyback is just it seems to me just just another investment. Again, you can invest in your company and you can invest in other companies. Uh, again, I'm not an expert, and I have to, you know, uh, but at least in terms of, of the, the, the straightforward economics of it, uh, you know, if you can borrow cheap money and think you're going to make 
profit, and you may as well do it, whether it's buying your stock or somebody else's stocks. Uh, of course, you may know more about your company. You know, you may know you may know that that uh, you know the truck, the, the stock is worthwhile, and, and, you'll be, and then you'll be able to pay back the loan. You may, uh, and if you're wrong, and if you're uh, you're banks, then you're in trouble. But uh, it seems to me that there's a there's sort of like a separation there <laughs> between. Uh, between uh, what 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 the, the the companies are doing on the financial side and what they're doing on the business side in this particular issue, right? Well, well, the, the buybacks, you know, I, I've I've been on record as early as 2011 saying that you should buy stocks that that uh, as as trader you should buy stocks that do buybacks. It has nothing to do with that being an efficient place to put your money. I think it's destroying the future growth rate of the company. But again, as traders. You can't short a stock, hold it, you know, for it to double or triple against it, you, and then eventually you're right. You're better off playing the trend, and then catching the downside when eventually that does happen. You know, buybacks, you know, it, it, the way that the the capitalistic markets have always worked is, you borrow money because interest rates are low, or you think you can make more money investing it someplace than what the interest rate is giving you. The problem that it seems to be is that with interest rates so low and so many margins being squeezed because money is flowing so easily is that basically it's just better to buy back your stock, see an appreciation of your stock price because the CEO at the end of the day gets judged by the stock price. So he cares about the short term. Yeah, it's, it's short termism. That's that's the problem. Right. I mean, it, right. I, think, I think the fundamental question from an economist's point of view is why are the investment project prospects so poor? The, the, the real investment. Why is building a laundromat or a shop, you know, or, or investing in in uh, R and D or, or or investing in the real side of the business? Why are the the prospects seem so bad that you're willing to do to prefer this or that financial investment? And the the contradiction in terms of buybacks is that. Uh, you know, if, if if your company seems to exist to be so well that 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 you're willing to borrow money to buy to buy the stock, then why aren't you investing in the company? Right. Well, that's the thing is that that's a puzzle. The, well, the CEO look. So you have two scenarios. You have a scenario where a CEO doesn't care about the company, and wants to make a lot of money, so he's judged by the stock price by his shareholders, who he's beholden to. Now you have a CEO who started a company, who loves the company. All of a sudden, you decide not to burn your balance sheet and say, listen, I would rather have the ability to burn my balance sheet when times are rough, like we've always done in the past. So we keep our balance sheet clean. We earn 6%, 5%, whatever it is, organically by running a successful company. And then when the economy does turn and we need to be able to go and get those lines of credits, that's when we're going to use it and we're going to withstand versus the company that borrows a lot today and doesn't have that capability. So when he says that, activist investors, Carl Icahn, Bill Ackman, some of the two two big ones, come into the company. They buy a big share of the company because, again, money is free, so it's easy for them to get a really high leverage. So what they do is they buy 10% of the company. They even did it with Apple, which is a, you know, Icahn did it with Apple. He was only able to buy 3 or 4%. But he was able to buy enough to, to make Tim Cook buy back shares of Apple. So what they do is they go to the CEO and say, listen, if you're not going to do it, we're going to go to we're going to do a proxy war. We're going to put our board members on because guess what? 
every single person who owns stock except for you wants the stock price to go up. So what I'm going to do at the next annual shareholder meeting is I'm going to go up there and say, hey, if you vote in my guys, I'm going to push for a buyback because we have a clean balance sheet and you can go out and borrow money at 1%, buy back a ton of stock. By, when you buy back the stock, you do two things. First is stock market is demand and supply. So if uh, you're doing a big massive buyback, you're obviously increasing the demand while the supply stays the same. So the price will go up because of that. But also right. go up because stocks are priced on EPS at the end of the day and P ratios. So by buying back shares, you're decreasing the division of shares. So your EPS goes up. So this company that's growing organically 5 6%, which is healthy in this environment, all of a sudden you either blackmail the CEO that we're going to kick you out unless you do it. Or he just agrees with you because he doesn't want a war, and he know, which he knows he's going to lose. And all of a sudden, the stock starts growing at 12 or 13% year over year, because not because they've done anything else in the business, just because they've bought back shares. So that's very dangerous in my mind. And I, I agree. That it's, I mean, it, it, it's, it's short-termism. And you know, as I said, and I, I'll quote Herb Stein again, if something is not sustainable, it will stop. And, right. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, and I could, I could, you know, quote, quote Chuck Prince, you know, if the music is, is playing, you got to dance. So, uh, uh, you know, those are dangerous situations. And again, uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, basically, if, 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 you know, if that's the game, then I agree with you. That's a, that's a problem. Well, it has been, and it continues to be. You know, buybacks are all-time highs. Going to just finish it on one last uh, one last statement. Do you think that the the economy can withstand a seventy percent drop in the stock markets while not going into a very deep crisis-like recession? Do you think that they're um, are they so connected that if you see a seventy percent drop in the markets, because in my opinion, the markets are way overpriced because of buybacks, right? So they're artificially overpriced. So Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we can see a 60, 70% drop in stocks, which would, in my opinion, bring it back to sustainable levels for now. Uh, and the economy can withstand that. Or do you think that the wealth effect that Greenspan pushed so much is still in play and that a 70% drop would, no matter what, cause a crisis in the overall economy? Uh, 70% is a lot. I think that would be, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't, when, in my days at the board, I used to know what the uh, coefficient of the stock market and the consumption function was, but uh, uh, and, and 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 it is, uh, it's there. So I, so certainly that would be uh, that would be a problem. That would be also a big problem for uh, for the elderly, for the senior citizens, because they having just taken a uh, a big hit with low interest rates, it also uh, take a hit on their stock portfolio, um, so certainly that you know that magnitude would be would be quite bad. On the other, uh, the, on the, the the every every cloud having a silver lining here, I would say that uh, it's not balanced. I mean, seven, 60, 70 percent is bad, but right. the uh, the the slightly optimistic lining to this cloud is that uh, stock, stock crashes have, always, have, have had less real effects than real estate crashes. I mean, real estate is so widely held that when real estate crashes, it affects really almost you know, many, many, many households, whereas stock crashes historically uh, have been more contained. On the other hand, the more you have pension funds, the more widespread it is. So uh, uh, right. 70% would be not good.
Oh, thank you so much for your time. We'd love to have you back. Uh, there was a lot of knowledge, and uh, I'll have some more questions for you, I'm sure, in the future. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure doing this, and uh, I, uh, I, I appreciate your sentiments, but I, like all the red, like I'm sure, like you do, I hope they're wrong. <laughs> Uh, yes, I, I, you know, I hope I'm 100% wrong. <laughs> Gary and Edward, love thank you very, very much for your time. We'll stay tuned. And as always, SideStraders, subscribe. We'll keep you updated. Till next time, this is almost at SideStraders.com. Gary and Edward, thank you so much again. Bye.